CTV's W5 with Avery Haynes. It's one of those moments in life where you remember exactly where you were and what you were doing when you found out. It has been one year since the world changed in almost every way. Tonight, a special look back and a look forward to the second year of life under COVID through the eyes of those who have been impacted most. My name is Javora Greenspawn. I am 88 years old. 88 years of life, the last decade of it spent in a Toronto long-term care home. So we'll talk to each other this way. And like everything in these strange times, getting to know Devorah takes some technical wizardry. We had to do a fair amount of, of rejigging in order to get a chance to, to meet. Boy, this was a real jingle jingle. <laughs> Through the window, Devorah shares stories and photos of her long life. Wow. I, and it's a painting that my daughter did. That's beautiful. This is a picture of me, I was the osteoporosis poster lady. Up until one year ago, Devorah Greenspawn led a rich and vibrant life. I was going to courses three times a week. I loved meeting my daughter and going out for lunch. So I had a, a really full life. And then COVID. Rarely have we heard a first-person account of what it's been like to live inside a COVID hot zone, a long-term care home, during a year that has taken the lives of so many seniors. At Devorah's home, 16 residents died. Is there any way to articulate what this past year has been like for you? I've lost a whole year of my life, and at my age, that's a big thing. Some days I didn't even want to get out of bed because there was nothing to do and I had nothing to look forward to. Does that scare you? That the rest of your life could be spent the way you've lived it the last year? Yeah, yeah. Because this is not how I plan to live my life. At the height of the first wave of the pandemic, Devorah was moved into another resident's room in an attempt to group together people without the virus. That was like being in prison because I couldn't go out the door for three months. I was devastated. It was just a horrific feeling to be in, in a room that wasn't your own with your own things. Like many seniors, Devorah has gone a full year without a visit or a hug from her children and grandchildren. And what's that like for you? Sad. And, and when we Zoom, it's bittersweet because I see them, but I can't hug them. You know, I just, I miss that, that hug. Which has sort of been worse, the fear of COVID or the isolation that you've lived in the last year? I really didn't think about the fear of getting COVID. Uh, I was, I, it just, the isolation was horrific. The PSWs, they're wearing masks and shields and all you see are the eyes. So 
The only reason I recognize them is through their voices. I haven't seen a smile for over a year. This has been a year of long lineups, empty streets, stay-at-home orders. For many seniors, the pandemic has been a one-year prison sentence, or in too many cases, a death sentence. Tonight, no mercy. The terrible toll at a small town nursing home in the clutches of COVID. A devastating six-week outbreak was finally declared over today, but not before 70 people died. One of the hardest hit long-term care homes in Toronto. COVID killed 73 people here in the last few weeks. The first person to die from COVID-19 in Canada was on March 8, 2020. Since that first death, more than 22,000 Canadians have died. 55% were living in long-term care facilities. This haunting image taken by a Toronto photographer defines the year of the COVID long-term care crisis. A grim graveyard of plastic-wrapped wheelchairs behind a facility where more than 50 residents did not survive the virus. The Canadian military was called in to stabilize the situation at several long-term care homes. Soldiers deployed to a battleground, not in some distant land, but here at seniors' homes in Ontario and Quebec. What they reported seeing was horrifying. They detailed patient abuse and neglect in understaffed and under-resourced homes. It's so disturbing when I, when I read this. It was hard to get through. It was the worst report, most heart-wrenching report I have ever read in my entire life, ever. Devorah Greenspawn says the Ontario Premier's outrage is not enough. You know, I heard Mr. Ford say he was going to do something about it, but I still haven't seen anything or heard anything about what they're really gonna do to fix long-term care because it needs a lot of fixing. The military was called in during the first wave and now parts of the country are well into the second wave. And there is a warning that not enough has changed to protect seniors in a potential third wave. We have one of the best healthcare systems in the world and we've managed to horrify our battle-ready military. Laura Tamlin Watts is a lawyer and president of CanAge, a nonprofit organization that fights for the rights of seniors. We have blood on our hands. We, we have a genocide of seniors, and we're seeing it still happen again. We haven't learned the lessons. You call it a genocide when you know that older people are dying and you refuse to give the measures required to save them, there's nothing else to call it but a senicide. Senicide, the killing of the elderly or their abandonment to death. It's been a nightmare that you cannot wake up from. Every day that it continues on, it gets worse. Right now, we lose one senior in long-term care every hour in Canada. Every hour somebody dies in long-term care from COVID? From COVID. We keep a ticker at the bottom of our screen. And so when we get tired at CanAge, and I think I can't do it anymore, I look at that ticker and think, no, we'll find more time. 
This is how it all started. Across China, panic over the mysterious virus has reached a fever pitch. January 11, 2020, China reported its first death from what was then called the coronavirus. And uh, seven uh, patients are now in a severe uh, condition, and one patient died. Less than two months later, a resident at this long-term care home in British Columbia became Canada's first victim. One of the residents of the Lynn Valley Care Home who was infected with COVID-19 passed away last night. It was Canada's first warning that care homes, not hospitals, would be the front line of the war on COVID. Europe is now the center of world infections. News out of China and Europe had already made it clear. Those most at risk were the elderly and people with serious pre-existing conditions. And yet in this country, the focus was on preparing hospitals, getting them PPE and ventilators. Tamlin Watts says the critical error is that long-term care homes were not a priority. Not enough staff, not enough PPE, not enough COVID tests. Without a question, our fixation on acute care and ICU beds cost seniors' lives. We knew long-term care would be the hardest hit. And yet, except for some provinces like BC, we could some maneuvering to put attention into long-term care. Other provinces like Ontario and Quebec just turn their eyes away. So if the ball was dropped in the early stages of the pandemic in not focusing on long-term care, it seems to me that the ball was dropped again when we saw it through the second wave that again, people are dying in long-term care facilities because of spread. We learned the lessons, but we didn't do anything about it. And that is in some ways the worst possible outcome. And now we see variants from Brazil, from the UK, from South Africa, and they are already in long-term care. And we're terrified of a third wave. One year in, there are still issues with testing, with PPE, with understaffing, and infection control. Tamlin Watts has concrete, immediate solutions, sick pay and vaccinations. Most of the infectious spread is coming in through staff. And staff can't often afford to take time off, particularly women who are often racialized and low income who are working in these homes. So 10 to 14 days of sick leave would make a huge difference. We also can start to really focus on vaccination because really only after vaccination of frontline workers and vulnerable adults has been completed can we really move to the next stage. 88-year-old Devorah Greenspawn can still only connect with her family on Zoom. But as she marks one year on the inside, a glimmer of hope for the future. How are you doing now, one year in? I'm hanging in. I'm very excited because I just got my second shot of COVID. You did not get your second shot of COVID. Please tell me that. You got your vaccine. I got my <laughs> vaccine. I'm sorry, I got my vaccine. <laughs> I got my vaccine. Oh, dear. <laughs> Coming up. We tried every mathematical equation to make it work, but it just wouldn't happen. Business owners suffering under restrictions. Someone has to pay for all of this. When W5 continues.
walking along the Danforth and seeing their windows boarded up. The desperation is awful. Will and Claire Sturm take their two young boys out for a walk along the Danforth, the main street in Toronto's Greek town. This once vibrant neighborhood has, like many areas right across the country, been hard hit by COVID shutdowns. I see hardly anybody on the streets, and I just see all these signs up of the businesses that are still trying, like like pleading, 15% off if you take out with us, 20% off if you take off. The ones that are operating are desperate. She can't even walk by there. This is what Claire can no longer walk by, Brass Taps, the restaurant that she and her husband poured their hearts and souls into for decades. Your love story really originates at the restaurant, doesn't it? It does, yeah. Um, my parents used to take us on Friday for a pizza treat. And then when I was going to school, I worked there as a server and Will was the general manager. So you guys are working together uh, there and you're uh, developing a relationship there. And then an opportunity comes up to actually buy the place. The original owner, he wanted to sell the restaurant. That was 18 years ago. Since then, they have juggled having children with the grueling hours it took to make Brass Taps a neighborhood hotspot. And then the pandemic hit. On March 15th, when we were told that we had to shut down, it was a very emotional day because it's been hard. The restaurants have been hard. They tried to reinvent the large restaurant, but takeout was a flop and their patio could only seat six. We tried every mathematical equation to make it work, but it just wouldn't happen. We were still having to operate with the same cost before the pandemic. Like our rent was still the same. The rent here is $12,000 a month. Plus property tax and all your utilities, you know, and payroll and whatnot. That, that amounts to... Geez, I'm going to guess maybe uh, 25000 bucks just for that month. It's, uh, it's, it's a stranglehold. I'm just trying to imagine the realization that this is done. What was that moment like? Um, it's been horrendous. <laughs> so it was emotional for all. We had to let nine staff go, and including wonderful workers, Coogan in the kitchen, who's been with us uh, since 1998. From Sri Lanka. And he has a family to support, and that was heartbreaking. Will shot this video when he and Claire went to Brass Taps one last time to lock the door for good. And it's last call here at Brass Taps. Claire and Will are not alone. They are just one example of a staggering statistic. The Canadian Federation of Independent Business estimates one out of every six small businesses are seriously considering closing for good. One out of every six. And according to the Federation, in the past year, the average Canadian small business accumulated $170,000 in debt, money they'll have to eventually pay back. Their plight has been a focal point on talk radio small businesses in the greater Toronto area have had it the worst. We're joined by Dan Kelly from the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Toronto and Peel have had the longest lockdowns in North America and one of the longest in the world. 
220 days restaurants will have been closed, indoor dining will have been closed, gyms will have been closed since the beginning of the pandemic by March the 8th. There's no doubt that uh, small businesses have been hit hard. Soheb Shahid is a senior economist with TD and has been tracking the economic gutting caused by COVID-19. As an economist, do you think that the lockdowns have gone too far and too deep and that it's put us in and our economy into a situation where so many people just will not be able to dig themselves out? You can't put numbers and data or value on the lives that have been lost. This is why it is, it is absolutely impossible to do a fair comparison. There are examples across the world where countries did not impose uh, serious lockdowns and we've seen the, the, you know, the toll it has taken on lives. But on the other hand, we've seen examples where uh, lockdowns have been strict and we've seen the toll it has taken on livelihoods. Stop the lockdown! Yeah, shut up! Yeah, yeah, put another mask on! Economists might say it's a delicate balance, but many think it's gone too far. Pent-up anti-mask, anti-shutdown rage has erupted right across the country. To file an injunction against the government to end this lockdown. Some took the fight even further, defying the law and opening their doors. The barbecue restaurant owner who has defiantly refused to close his doors during Toronto's lockdown Get him pumped up. appeared to be in the mood to put on a show, rounding up his supporters. That's it! Open up for business! To capture and share on social media the chaotic confrontation with police. Let's go! Let's go! Restaurants and other service industries have been the biggest economic losers in this pandemic, and their employees, mostly young people, immigrants, and women, suffered most. You say that we are in the midst of a she-session. What is a she-session? We should look at the global financial crisis. That was a crisis in which job losses were concentrated mostly among men. But one of the unique things about this crisis is that the, the burden of uh, losses is being faced by the services sector. Now, because of this, we've seen most of the job losses, at least in the beginning of this recession, concentrated among women. And with the services sector hit so hard, the future is, for young people, especially bleak. A lot of the job losses have been concentrated among the so-called Gen Z. Hi, I'm Byron. I'm 20. I'm Abhinit. I'm in my fourth year. I'm Samantha. Um, I'm studying uh, human resources. My name's Niharika. I'm a first year. A lot of our research uh, shows that uh, you know, if you're graduating into a recession, your lifetime income earnings are much lower than those people who are graduating into an economic boom. For that generation that is entering the workforce in a recession, this will impact their life earnings until they die? Lifetime, absolutely, absolutely, because there are hardly any jobs. So what you do when you graduate into a market like this is that you often are unemployed or you are taking jobs that are below your skill set. Uh, I haven't heard that actually. Funny so, enough, I have. Really? So I, I, this is actually been spoken in one of my economics class. Yeah, I'm, I'm probably set back five years at least. From all my classes, what people have said is that the past is not the best indicator of future economic profit or future economic growth. It is interesting going into the summer and, and trying to find an internship of you don't really know what, what to look look for. 
I think for me, there's been a lot of uncertainty instead of just optimistic or not optimistic, especially because we still have time to step into the job market technically. We're, we're hoping to wait this out. Today, I can announce that we are investing $214 million. $962 million. $9 billion. All those millions and billions add up to at least $240 billion in federal COVID relief money handed out in 2020. Is there any way of gauging how many generations it's going to take to pay that back? So, you know, a lot of it had to be done. Having said that, um, someone has to pay for all of this. One of the things that is likely to happen is that there will be higher taxes going forward. Who will pay for these taxes? It is likely that uh, it will be our future generations. Generations plural? You know, it is too soon to say uh, whether it's plural or not, because we don't know if there will be more borrowing going forward. The one silver lining is that interest rates are incredibly low. And Shahid says that the billions the federal government has been handing out is actually fueling the economy. Absolutely, that is needed. And uh, we are not the only ones who are saying it. The International Monetary Fund put out a small report on Canada suggesting that uh, government support should continue and should not be uh, prematurely withdrawn. The government response has been strong, has been unprecedented, and has been targeted. The government response, though, was not enough to save Brass Taps, a restaurant that served Toronto's Greek town for three decades, the last two with Will and Claire as owners. I'm imagining that the financial picture right now for you guys is super bleak. It yeah, is. Yeah, it is <laughs> at the moment, I guess, yeah. We're not going to get an eviction notice out of this house. Or... But it is quite stressful. But it is stressful. So what do you see in the future for you then? Well, I we see do. this in my future every day. <laughs> we do. Uh, you still have the love. You don't have the restaurant anymore, but you still have the love. <laughs> we do, we do. We do. And uh, that's the most important part. Coming up. I called my doctor's office and she said, go immediately and get tested. A devastating diagnosis. It will come and will either be ready or not. When W5 continues. Welcome back. Through two exhausting waves of COVID-19, frontline workers are reaching a breaking point. As we look ahead to a variant third wave, there are questions about how they and we will cope in this second year of COVID-19. The intensive care unit the team here is used to dealing with tragedy and death. But COVID has changed everything, introducing new levels of fear. I will try to wake her up. Anxiety. This watcher line there. Exhaustion. And so the vents are kind of stuck and we're waiting for her to awaken. And grief for the patients who are fighting on ventilators for weeks. So he's not anywhere near where we thought he would be today, right? only to lose their battle, with the staff making tough decisions to end life support. And we are going to withdraw care. This is a particularly powerful and poignant loss, because he's been, 
He's been in our family here, in our home here for a month. W5 spent three days here at the COVID ICU at South Lake Regional Health Centre in Newmarket, Ontario, during the first wave. Even then, the staff was suffering. I actually had to take myself to emerge one day because the anxiety was giving me chest pain. A lot of family and friends, they're contacting us. Oh, sorry, uh, co-workers were saying we love you. Do you want a minute? Huh? If you want a minute, you can take a minute. Yeah, give me two seconds. <laughs> sorry. You know, in critical care medicine, we see a lot of people who pass away. This, of course, has uh, taken on a whole new level. Dr. Barry Nathanson is the head of the ICU. Day in and day out over the last year, he's done this. So you got a good mean, he's still tacky, he's febrile. Trying to save lives ravaged by the virus. So much has changed since we first documented life and death in the ICU. The most noticeable is the staff. This picture was taken after we finished filming. Many of the people in this photo have since transferred out of the ICU. There is a huge change of our team from uh, the spring of last year to where we are today. It's been nine months since we followed Dr. Nathanson on rounds in the ICU. We met again over Zoom to talk about the toll COVID has taken on the staff. Many, many, many nurses have just said, I can't do this. We've also seen a lot of uh, episodic sick leave where, where people just for the emotional grind that this is taking, they just, they just decide that it's better that they not come in today or, or the next few days, they need a break. How are you doing? Um, I'm doing very, very well uh, on average. I have my moments. This past year has been so challenging for, for hospital staff that they're actually leaving in droves and, and that those who are staying are needing to take these mental health days just to make it through. Um, that's the plain truth the, that, that many, many have left. How many more months can we bear up under this? I don't have an answer to that. A recent survey may provide a hint of an answer. In Ontario alone, 71% of registered practical nurses say they've experienced a breaking point. 34% say they are considering leaving the profession. There is only so much that uh, humans can bear up under over the long haul. A warning though, that despite the global havoc that has been caused by COVID-19, this may be just a dress rehearsal for a more deadly virus that might be lurking. We need to come to grips with the fact now that this was inevitable and the next one, whatever it might be, uh, is inevitable. And frankly, you know, there are features of this coronavirus that have kept us from a much, much greater disaster. And the next one, well, we may not be quite so fortunate. The next one, Dr. Nathanson fears, could be more contagious and with a higher death rate. He says we didn't learn from the last coronavirus crisis. He was on the front line 18 years ago when Canada was declared a hot zone for a mysterious virus that originated in Asia. Have you come in contact with anybody with the disease SARS? Eerily reminiscent of what we're living now, this is back in 2003 when passengers arriving in Toronto and Vancouver 
were screened for the virus known as SARS. There are now a growing number of suspect cases of this respiratory syndrome, the latest in Winnipeg, where a man who traveled to China returned home ill. SARS did not become a pandemic. Even though it was a more deadly virus, it was not as contagious as COVID-19. Dr. Nathanson is worried what other viruses might be lurking. While we're still in the midst of trying to wrangle COVID-19, is it your belief that, that it's also time to start looking towards what might be next and making sure that we're set up to handle it? There's no if about it. It will come and we'll either be ready or not. And this time, I don't think we were ready. I think the evidence points to the fact that we weren't ready. Uh, so we better be prepared to step up more quickly and more thoroughly and more readily. In many ways, we have been quite fortunate this time. This really could be seen as merely a shot over the bow, as a warning. It's a warning that is echoed by the head of the World Health Organization's emergencies program. Uh, this pandemic has been very severe. It's been, it's spread around the world uh, extremely quickly and has affected every corner of this planet. But this is not necessarily the big one. This is a wake up call. These threats will continue. Threats that could be more contagious and deadlier than COVID-19. In Canada, more than 870,000 people tested COVID positive this past year. More than 22,000 died, meaning the death rate is 2.5%. Some 817,000 Canadians have been declared recovered. But what does recovery look like? Well, for some, like Dee Gibson in Toronto, it's been a roller coaster. She got COVID twice. COVID 2.0. <laughs> COVID 2.0, you got it again. Yes. The Toronto food industry consultant first got sick back in May of 2020. Feeling unwell with a crazy headache like I've never had in my life before. Checked my temperature, it was 39.1. Uh, tried to get up and thought, oh my God, my legs are wobbly. And I called my doctor's office and she said, go immediately and get tested. Dee's test came back negative, but we now know that depending on when you get tested, false negatives occur at least 20% of the time. In this text, Dee's doctor says they're getting crazy numbers of referrals and a lot of COVID negative that sound like COVID. Her doctor's note pinned the COVID exposure to her workplace. Dee was told despite the negative test, she was presumptive positive. It's because it feels kind of like chronic fatigue, but with these other gamut of symptoms. My blood pressure is really high, was never high before. My thyroid went from hyper to hypo. Memory loss, I would sit at a computer and not even know where to start typing. Dee is what's called a long hauler those who have lingering symptoms for months caused by the body's immune response to the virus. W5 documented the plight of the long haulers. And across genders and generations, the symptoms were similar. Hair loss is a big one. I've lost a lot of hair. Uh, a lot of neurological damage that has remained. I feel like I'm twice my age, I'm 41. There's not a day that goes by where I can live my life the way I used to. Dee had similar complaints, and for months she suffered a long list of symptoms, including a low-grade fever that wouldn't go away and would then spike. Was there any time during this process where you're wondering, am I ever going to be the same? I, yeah, I, yes. And even to 
now I wonder that. So back in was it November, I went for a neuro COVID study at Sunnybrook Hospital because the doctor recommended, you know, that way they can at least track my brain. It was a one and a half hour MRI, and then you go into a four hour uh, memory test. And I kind of pride myself to have a photographic memory, and I couldn't remember things. And that to me was quite shocking in that short a time that I was having that kind of memory loss. After five months of suffering, Dee started to feel better by about October. Then in January, she started feeling sick again, so got another COVID test. I almost cried. When I saw that pop up, I thought, no way. How can that possibly be? A long hauler for months, Dee contracted COVID-19 a second time. Is there any research out there on how rare it is to get COVID twice? I actually spoke to my specialist and she was saying, you know, all we know is that we do have cases of people who've had it twice. It's almost like uh, getting struck by lightning twice. Yeah. <laughs> getting COVID twice is unusual, but not unheard of. Early research shows that immunity lasts for at least five months, possibly longer. For Dee, seven and a half months had passed between her first exposure and her positive test. I'm a lucky one, because I'm young, but if I was in my 70s or 80s and got it twice, I can't imagine that, that I would have survived this. Coming up. This photo is so chilling. Documenting a different world under lockdown. Horrifying to know that you could be next. I've lost so many people. When W5 continues. It's been one year of COVID. The empty store shelves. The year of the mask, from futuristic and ominous to glamorous and playful. Toronto photographer John Hernick has been documenting it all. I basically uh, got on my bike and hit the streets and uh, wandered around the city with my iPhone taking photos. The collection of pandemic portraits is on display and shared for everyone to see in downtown Toronto. I really was amazed at how the pandemic brought people together and uh, there was a lot of resiliency. It was amazing to see, to see everybody coming together and just trying to deal with it all. I mean, these photos are pieces of history. I mean, you have documented an, a very historic time. I'm a storyteller and I, and I love telling stories through my images. This was early in the pandemic. They had to make sure they were exactly six feet apart and he had a, a flag that was six, six feet long. This photo is so chilling. It was outside one of the long-term care homes in Mississauga. Interestingly enough, they had had a memorial with crosses just on the other side of this fence. When I asked one of the nurses, she said that those were the wheelchairs of the dead and to have these wheelchairs covered in plastic. Like body bags. Yeah, like body bags. And they were there quarantining the chairs uh, just to make sure that they could reuse them again, which I thought was really distressing. When I got back later that day and I was sitting in front of the computer and I almost felt like I could see bodies under the plastic, it just kind of freaked me out. That's how striking the image was to me. Whether it was a Black Lives Matter march or a drag show in the suburbs, John captured ordinary Canadians living through this extraordinary time. 
And did you have interactions with people? I mean, did you engage with them and ask them? Oh, they, yeah. And so did you get a sense beyond the photographs of just what the mood was of the people who you were taking pictures of? Somber mood, very somber. I was cycling up in North Toronto and uh, happened upon a nursing home. A couple were visiting and of course they couldn't go into the home because of uh, the restrictions, so they had to stay outside the home. And uh, that was the end of their meeting when they were touching hands. Visits outside of windows. It's what we had to resort to in order to meet 88-year-old Devorah at her long-term care home in Toronto. Despite the isolation, though, Devorah has found ways to stay connected with residents in other care homes. Hi, Devorah. Hi. Sorry I'm late. I just finished my therapy. Every week they have an online coffee club hosted by D. Lender. Jamie, nice to see you. My goodness, your beard is getting long. <laughs> We're going to call you Grizzly Adams there, Jamie. Dee is the executive director of the Ontario Association of Residence Councils, an organization that amplifies the voices and advocates for those living in long-term care. Hi, everybody. Surprise, surprise, I'm here. <laughs> they talk about their fears. A very scary experience, just horrifying to know that you could be next. I've lost so many people uh -huh. that I have loved and admired. They're gone. And their moments of joy. There's so much sharing has come out of COVID and the kindness of trying to help others, bringing food in, and, and the team members, the compassion just poured out of them. My granddaughter said to me, she said, I'm sick and tired of not being able to see you. She says, can I be a, an essential caregiver? <laughs> What's one thing you want to do when, when this is all over and we can look back and say, yeah, that's done now? Carolyn? Go to my daughter's for Sunday roast beef and Yorkshire pudding dinner. <laughs> I haven't had that in over a year. <laughs> Making plans like that and having hope and dreams of a brighter future are healthy coping mechanisms for COVID year two, not just for the elderly, but for all of us. When we look at things like the Holocaust and famines and world wars, hope was very important. Dr. Shimmy Kang is a psychiatrist in Vancouver and a neuroscience researcher. This has been described as a marathon. And I know when you're running a marathon, it's easier to get through when you know where the finish line is. Does not knowing when it's going to end impact our ability to deal with this on a day-to-day? The unknown can be scary, but it doesn't have to be. Um, and I, I think you want to uh, balance this idea of it's going to end soon and hope, of course, uh, but also with this idea that in this moment, we are doing our best and we're okay. It feels as though we're living this giant social experiment. Is there any research on how much of this as humans we can take of the lockdowns, of the isolation? of the change in the way that we normally live our lives? So, you know, I definitely think it's been hardest on the extremes of the age group. On one end, the elderly. On the other end, I would say babies. Babies are growing up um, seeing people with masks on and everyone looking at their phone. Um, the simple act of eye contact, facial expression is brain development. It grows the brain and babies aren't seeing that. And for those who are vulnerable, 
isolation can be deadly. In cities and communities across this country, another silent epidemic is surging in the shadows of COVID-19. Opioid overdoses are claiming thousands of Canadian lives. While illegal fentanyl continues to fuel the crisis, the pandemic is also contributing with more people using in isolation. We were in a mental health crisis um, prior to the pandemic. This current generation was the first, the first in human history predicted to not outlive the one that came before them. Um, and that is because of anxiety, depression, addiction, obesity, diabetes, lifestyle-related chronic disease that are part of our unhealthy lifestyle. And this was pre-pandemic. Pre-pandemic. And then now, you're right, this is a collective stress about a year, um, and stress is toxic to our mind, our body, and our social fabric. When COVID first hit, we had no idea just how long it would last. Now that we know we're in this for the long haul, Dr. Kang says the key to surviving is to develop a routine, exercise, eat well, and find ways to adapt to the ever-changing world. Remember Will and Claire, the restaurateurs in Toronto whose business could not survive COVID? Well, they're among many Canadians now grappling with just how to adapt. When we were talking about our next project and our next chapter, we even focused on it's gonna have to be takeout, but it's, it has to be something that fits the change. And the change is takeout, delivery. For the interim right now. We need an income. We so. just need income. So we're just going to just go get jobs at the moment and then, and then figure things out and, and then it, and, and unravel our plan when it, when it comes. From the Sturms who are looking for work to Dr. Barry Nathanson who wishes he didn't have so much work, trying to save the seemingly endless stream of patients who end up in the ICU at South Lake Hospital north of Toronto. As we enter a second year of COVID, he too is holding on to small victories. I'll make a confession. I have shaken another person's hand once since last March. What did that feel like? <laughs> well, let me tell you how I engineered it because we were both terrified. We both doused our hands in alcohol-based rub so that they were saturated. And we grasped the saturated hands shook one another's hand and then stepped away and washed our hands. And it was a very powerful, very, very um, profound moment. It only lasted for 30 seconds. <laughs> I'll remember that forever. 88-year-old Devorah Greenspawn is dreaming of the future. When COVID is gone and you bust out of this place, what are your plans? What would you like to do uh, the minute this pandemic is over? Oh, well, the first thing is have a I get together with my kids <laughs> and have a big hugging party. <laughs> I'm just wondering whether there's, there's any advice that you have for people as we enter the second year of this pandemic. I don't think they should complain. If they can go out for a walk and smell the fresh air, I think they're very fortunate. So I think they should be thankful for what they have. I know I'm thankful for what I have. I'm thankful that I wake up every morning and I'm alive. <laughs> Devorah says that after she has that hugging party, she'd also like to travel to go to the opera in Vienna and to take a river cruise through Prague.
You've been listening to CTV's W5 with Avery Haynes. 